was the night before Christmas, when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. Wow, and soon he may be upon all of us. This will be familiar to most people, but what's also special about what you've just heard is that it was New York who gave it to the world, Uh, or more specifically, Clement Clark Moore, a New Yorker whom we'll talk about later in the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate, and I love New York. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture, and current vibe of our amazing city. On most shows, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood, exploring its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? Sometimes we host a show about an interesting and vital color of the city, like tonight, and we bring you a special show, New York and the Holidays. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can hear us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. Um, New York at Christmas. We New Yorkers like to take credit for a lot of things. Well, we can take credit for Christmas itself as much as some of us would like to do it. Um, Maybe one New Yorker in particular I'm not going to mention. Um, there are a number of ho- timeless holiday traditions that were invented or evolved here, and not just Christmas. But of all the holidays we celebrate this time of year in New York, even with the citizenry as diverse as New York's, and given all the Jewish people in the city, uh, by the way, at times more than a quarter of the city's population was Jewish, Christmas is the most celebrated and the most glitzy in our great city, and it's where we'll begin tonight. On many shows, I like to go back to colonial times, to the times of the Dutch, uh, Europeans having settled here for almost 400 years. Um, We have some special guests tonight. We have our special consultant, David Griffin, and Daniel Katz. Let me tell you about them both. David is a lifelong architectural enthusiast, providing creative sales-enhancing services for the national real estate community. He's the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. His clients include architects and design firms, in addition to developers, brokers, and marketing companies. His Room at the Top series, co-hosted with Jennifer Wallace of Nascent New York, is the only ongoing networking series in real estate to feature tours of Manhattan's greatest buildings. His writing has appeared in Real Estate Weekly, Metropolis, Dwell, and the National Trust's Preservation Magazine. Our second guest is Daniel Katz. Daniel is founder and managing principal of Danielist, a marketing communications boutique where he works closely with his clients to develop strategies to profile their expertise and achieve their business goals. He's worked with high-level executives on a variety of marketing initiatives from crafting multi-million dollar business proposals and drafting multilingual marketing credentials to storyboarding digital advertising and executing major events. In 2018, Daniel also co-founded Second Wave Learning, a professional development company focused on intergenerational cooperation in the workplace. Uh, Special welcome to David and to Daniel Katz. Welcome to Rediscovering New York. Great to be here again. Thanks so much. Well, David, you know we always like to talk about the Dutch in colonial times. Um, Europeans uh, having settled here in the city for almost 400 years. Of course, there were people here beforehand, but they didn't celebrate Christmas, the Lenape people. What was Christmas like in colonial times? Well, uh, curiously enough, uh, although we often think of colonial times as being much more religious than uh, times are now, and they were, uh, particularly in cities such as Boston or Philadelphia, Christmas itself was not really a major holiday in terms of public observance. And there was nothing overtly genteel or children or family-oriented about the way that it was marked. Most people in the colonial period were, in fact, ambivalent about it as a festival, or observed it only in church itself. Uh, And even the observation there was irregular at best, Uh, although in Boston it has been noted that shops have been advertising the ritual exchange of Christmas gifts since at least 1808. So there's something that does tie into our our modern notions of Christmas. Uh, Such celebrating as there was in public in New York, Boston, Philadelphia, a number of other cities during America's first decades as a country was in the streets. It was really a street festival. It was very raucous. Uh, Christmas was a time when the normal social structure became sort of satirically challenged in a way. And people like laborers or newsboys, sometimes total strangers, would ask their social superiors, quote-unquote, for tips and gifts, sometimes even going right up to the homes and knocking on the door. 
Uh, concepts such as trick-or-treating derive ultimately from these customs. Oh, not so old. I remember uh, in the 60s and the 70s, Mom used to complain that the sanitation workers came knocking on the right. door uh, for tips around holiday time. Uh, history kind of repeats itself. But uh, getting back to New York hundreds of years ago, um, there was a kind of caroling that also became traditional in New York. Uh, it was called wassailing. Uh, this was chiefly a importation from the UK. Uh, the practice was a little bit more menacing than the door-to-door -door caroling we're sort of usually accustomed to thinking of. Uh, the singers in this era were of the sort of quote-unquote rougher class as well as more numerous and usually more drunk than you might be expected of a, a group of holiday people coming to sing Oh Silent Night. Um, their song fest could devolve into crude and, in fact, dangerous behavior. In many cases, these caroling parties ended up in fights. Uh, they would sometimes crash upper-class parties. They'd vandalize property and storefronts. And um, it sort of ties into some of the more uh, vulgar pranks, if you will, of the SantaCon hordes today. And like what's going on, I think, with the evolution of SantaCon, uh, it didn't sit very well with the city at large. Uh, um, well, it sounds a little bit like the 70s, but uh, in terms of, of, of some of the actions that people took in the city, but, it, but not quite. It was the 70s, the 1770s. 70s. <laughs> and a copy of the 1772 Norwich Advisor, an editor criticized how street celebrations of Christmas lacked, quote, decency, temperance, and sobriety, and that the assorted masses, quote, spend their time in gaming, drunkenness, quarreling, swearing, etc., to the great disturbance of the neighborhood. Oh, Lord have mercy. There was an interesting um, episode, actually, which uh, illustrates some of these other uh, customs uh, in which a, uh, many people would, would set out in order to visit their friends and relations on New Year's Day. Uh, and this custom became kind of incorporated into Christmas at the time. So all of a sudden you had two different social sets with two diff very different views in mind kind of meeting each other in the street to the... Um, discomfort of many. <laughs> well, um, so how did we get to, to Santa Claus and St. Nicholas? What uh, New York sort of pioneered that, didn't we? We did. There was a sea change that was affected by a number of New York's literary celebrities. Um, Washington Irving was probably first and foremost among them. Uh, there's a historian and biographer, Andrew Burstein, uh, who has, in the process of writing a biography on Washington Irving, who has said, quote, in large part, we can thank New York's own Washington Irving because what Irving understood was that Christmas needed a story. In other words, it needed a narrative. Um, and he Irv was America's first professional author, yes, yes. Yes, we actually had a show about him very recently. Uh, he was upset that he felt that there were a few very real unifying holidays in early America, and he decided to give his compatriots a little push with the help from both the English and the Dutch traditions. We have to remember that New York at this time was still very much a center of Dutch America. Uh, in his 1809, quote-unquote, A History of New York, which was a sort of a comic accounting of the Dutch era, he declared the European gift-giver St. Nicholas to be the state's patron saint and claimed that his image appeared on the masthead of the first Dutch ship to arrive in New York. Do you think that's true? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, Irving, I uh, he, uh, he took a poetic license with a, with a number of things. Many people during the early Romantic period <laughs> did. Um, now, when that book was published, New Year's Day was New York's only winter holiday. So in converting uh, St. Nicholas into a sort of a holiday trope, Irving had some help, apparently unsolicited, from John Pintard, who was one of the people who complained a lot about the noise that people would make on Christmas Day, keeping him up or, or you know, inter inter interacting with him when he was trying to do something um, refined. Um, Mr. Pintard really put his money where, where, where his mouth was, as he was a founder of the New York Historical Society, the city's oldest museum. Uh, and he publicized an engraved picture of uh, St. Nicholas and sought to kind of anoint the bishop the historic bishop as the symbol of New York City, uh, as St. Nicholas was also at that time the patron of children. Hmm. And how did, how did uh, Irving then uh, uh, help bring, bring this to... Uh... Well, by 1820, Washington Irving had actually been living abroad for about five years. It had taken him 
um, the better part of a decade to sort of write his next book. And this was uh, something called The Sketchbook, uh, which contained his two most famous stories, Rip Van Winkle and The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Uh, both appear and both are written in the tone of the traditional Christmas story, which was one of ghosts and goblins. It was usually read on Christmas Eve aloud around the fire as a kind of a, a transitional period into the, the solstice of winter. Um, but he also had a, a sort of a, a take on real life Christmas traditions. It was interesting. Mm. Well, I think uh, something that although it was certainly the humorous and satirical behind some of Irving's motivations, uh, one of his goals was to create more joy in New York out of the holiday. Mm-hmm. Wasn't didn't he didn't he also do that? Yes, he had discovered disappearing holiday traditions among the English, and he thought they were actually too beautiful to lose. And he also thought that without the festive spirit of Christmas, um, an already sort of uninspiring season would, quote, only become more bleak. Um, Obviously, winter in the UK is already very cold. It's very dark. It gets dark early. But in New York, it's much colder, and there was a lot more snow. So New York winters did tend to be very, very formidable, even by the standards of Europe. Um, in a story called The Stagecoach, uh, he describes an unplanned trip to an estate uh, that he called, of a family called the Bracebridges, who live in the countryside. And he writes in great detail about the bounty of the holiday table, singing of carols, the generosity of the host towards the people of the neighborhood. Um, in another story, Irving actually specifically mentions the practice of hanging mistletoe, which was so odd that it required a footnote to explain to his American readers. Hmm. Was the hanging mistletoe originally an, an English custom? Uh, yes, uh, and it was hung up in farmhouses and kitchens on Christmas. The young men had the privilege of kissing the girls who were under it, plucking each time a berry from the bush. When the berries were all plucked, the privilege ceased. Ah. <clears throat> so I suppose if you put mistletoe up, you should put up a lot of berries to keep the to keep the revelry going. We we've sort of not <laughs> we, we we no longer realize that you are supposed to remove the berries. So oh. it's just sort of a, a kind of a thing that it stays up there and it's you know kissing season until you take it down again, I guess. Um, Washington Irving really profoundly influenced the American Christmas, and his melding of St. Nick and an English commemoration of old into a wintry celebration of nostalgia attests to the rich cultural legacy bequeathed to us by Irving. Um, Within a decade of the publication of Irving's sketchbook, New Yorkers were greeting each other with Christmas wishes, and stores on Broadway began to extend their hours to accommodate Mm. shoppers. So it really was New York that gave Christmas to the rest of the country then. Yeah, I would say so. Well, uh, getting to the author of one of the most famous Christmas poems of all time, which Daniel read a little bit from at the beginning of this episode, Twas the Night Before Christmas. Um, That was penned not just by a New Yorker, but by a New Yorker who had a profound impact on the city and on the celebration of Christmas. Do you want to talk a little bit about Clement Clark Moore, David? Sure. Uh, Clement Clark Moore is uh, uh, a gentleman whose family owned and developed the neighborhood of Chelsea, uh, which is particularly the area of the blocks of brownstones that are now around the old seminary. And he developed Renwick Triangle, which is a, uh, a very beautiful development in the East Village. So he was a noted real estate developer, in addition to being a writer, theologian of uh, some note. Um, although his authorship is somewhat in doubt, most people agree that the poem an account of a visit from St. Nicholas, which is better known as The Night Before Christmas, was written by Moore for his daughters. In the poem, he goes explicitly to describe the saint as the bringer of gifts and Christmas cheer and base the appearance of his character of St. Nick, according to his own account, on, quote, a portly, rubicund Dutchman in the neighborhood with some other elements borrowed from Irving's St. Nicholas. Uh, the poem was first syndicated in a newspaper known as the Troy Sentinel, and later across the country. Uh, Interestingly, the poem appears to take place in a still rural environment, but we have to realize that during the period... Do I hear little Christmas bells or sleigh bells in the background? Uh, (laughs) Maybe Santa's coming a little early. I guess he could be. Uh, Um, There might have been Mrs. Claus, but anyway. (laughs) The the period, uh, much of Manhattan was rural. So the scenes that he describes in the poem could definitely be taking place in in New York City itself. Mm. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with David and Daniel about holidays in New York. We'll be back in a minute. (laughs) 
You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, The Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. back to Rediscovering New York with my guests David Griffin and Daniel Katz. Um, when On most episodes, David talks with me about the history of a particular neighborhood. Tonight is a little bit different, but David uh, is the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. Do you want to talk about Landmark Branding and, and tell our listeners what it does? Sure. So I uh, work in marketing and support and development for owners, developers, and brokers of historic and other architecturally distinguished buildings, including new builds. Uh, I do everything from VIP tours to bios, uh, team profiles, um, actual editorial for marketing, coming up with names and brands for buildings, etc. and so forth. I write for Real Estate Week. I write for, um, I've written for Metropolis, I've written for Dwell, uh, I'm writing for Brownstoner, I do listings, I have my own blog, Every Building on 5th, uh, which was a history and picture of every single building on 5th Avenue. I'm starting that up again in 2020, we're going to be revisiting key sites all along the avenue and seeing what new developments and restorations have been having. So uh, yes, my uh, website is landmarkbranding.com, and the blog can be found there as well, Every Building on 5th. Fifth, uh, as well as my um, email address and contact information. We'll have to find a program to talk about buildings on Fifth Avenue, especially the ones that are lesser known. We do we have talked about grand structures in the past. Um, Daniel, tell us a little bit about uh, about your business and what you do. Hi, thanks. So um, I am a marketing professional as well. I have been. Working in marketing for about 12 years now, but I started my company just a couple years ago. We do um, brand development. We also do professional services, marketing, and business development in pretty much every facet from working on proposals to developing full-on strategies as well as executing on them. And we also work on sort of creating a team of marketing professionals that you can sort of outsource. So whether it's PR or brand design or marketing content, we can do it all. Well, one thing I found really interesting and actually fascinating as, a, as someone who spent 22 years in the marketing and advertising business was when you told me how uh, one niche that you're especially great at is working with um, medium-sized law firms to actually help them develop uh, a brand which many of them had never even thought of. It's just like whether they're lawyers, they're not, you know, who are they to the public? How do they how do they represent themselves? How do they, how does how does the public see them? Right, that's correct. So I um, worked in big law firms, big global law firms, for about a decade, and so I've been working with those and smaller firms to create their own brands and to figure out how to go to market. Whether it's you know either if it's just a practice or if it's sort of a bigger firm more generally, you know how to actually understand what marketing looks like for a lawyer is not something that most people have ever really thought about. So that's... And how can people get in touch with you? So you can reach me on my website. It's uh, www.daniellist.com. And all my contact info is on there as well. Okay, great. 
Well, we're going to go back a couple of centuries now, back to Clement and Clark Moore and um, the uh, image of this portly Dutchman. <laughs> Uh, what what was with uh, uh, his nose like a cherry? That begins to sound like something that we know of in this in this portly old gentleman. Uh, the the thought that he might have been actually dipping into the sherry. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, the version that Moore put together of Saint Nicholas really bears very little resemblance to the original saint who lived in what is now Turkey during the fourth century. Um, the Saint Nicholas of history was a very kindly person, um, obviously, uh, and also very generous, but rather stern and you know very much kind of a figure of uh, biblical import. Um, moreover, interestingly, Moore's uh, association of St. Nicholas with Christmas is new to this period. St. Nicholas Day is traditionally celebrated on December 6th, but Moore's poem set the saint's visit on Christmas Eve, informally tying St. Nicholas to the holiday. Um, we now know St. Nick basically as Santa Claus in this country. That's the most popular name for him. And that particular name is derived from the German and Dutch Sinterklaas, who is an equivalent figure. But actually. didn't leave such nice presents for kids. <laughs> uh, they Yes, Sinterklaas was actually someone who was more about punishment <laughs> than he was about re rewards, or equally so, I should say. So we sort of removed the switches and the grampuses and the goblin that came to get you in its bag and just kept the jolly old man. And that was sort of a, a way of kind of softening the whole image, I think. So it could even be said then that one thing that New York gave to the world was the evolution of Santa Claus to being who Santa Claus is today. Yes, very much so. Um, there was something very interesting that happened uh, newspaper-wise that uh, might have questioned the existence of the newly found Santa Claus. What was that about and in New York? Well, in 1897, Philip O'Hanlon, a coroner's assistant on Manhattan's Upper West Side, was asked by his then eight-year-old daughter, Virginia O'Hanlon, whether Santa Claus really existed. So we know the question has been around for a very long time, almost as, much, almost as long as uh, St. Nick himself has been. Um, her father suggested that Virginia write to The Sun, a prominent New York City newspaper at the period, uh, assuring her that if you see it in The Sun, it's so. Now, in doing so, Dr. O'Hanlon had unwittingly given one of the paper's editors, Francis Farcellus Church, an opportunity to rise above the simple question Virginia had and address certain philosophical issues behind it. And we have to remember that in 1897, we're still dealing with the fallout, um, uh, very much so in living memory, of the American Civil War. So uh, Church was a war correspondent during that war, a time that saw a great deal of obviously human suffering, corresponding lack of hope, faith in much of society. Um, and he really came up with something that I think was seen as uh, an inspirational essay. It actually has served, I think, for the model for a lot of literature like that. Uh, the paper ran the editorial in the seventh place on the page, Below even one article that was about the newly invented chainless bicycles. Um, but it was noticed and very well received by readers. Well, we have that a bit of that editorial that we're going to read. But first, we're going to also read the letter from the eight-year-old daughter of Dr. Philip O'Hanlon. Dear Editor, I am eight years old. Some of my little friends say there is no Santa Claus. Papa says, if you see it in the sun, it's so. Please tell me the truth. Is there a Santa Claus? In response, yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. He exists as certainly as love and generosity and devotion exist, and you know that they abound and give to your life its highest beauty and joy. Alas, how dreary would be the world if there were no Santa Claus. It would be, dre it would be as dreary as if there were no Virginias. There would be no childlike faith then, no poetry, no romance to make tolerable this existence. We should have no enjoyment except in sense and sight. The eternal light with which childhood fills the world would be extinguished. Not believe in Santa Claus, you might as well not believe in fairies. You might get your papa to hire men to watch in all the chimneys on Christmas Eve to catch Santa Claus, but even if they did not see Santa Claus coming down, what would that prove? Nobody sees Santa Claus, but that is no sign that there is no Santa Claus. The most real things in the world are those that neither children nor men can see. Did you, did you ever see fairies dancing on the lawn? Of course not. 
but that's no proof that they are not there. Nobody can conceive or imagine all the wonders there are, unseen and unseeable, in the world. So it was New Yorkers, gentlemen, who not only helped perfect and give the world Santa Claus, it was New Yorkers who convinced the energy of New York, who convinced everybody that Santa Claus really exists. Uh, a little bit later in the show, we're going to talk about a very famous movie that actually did the same thing. But before that, um, with all this Christmas stuff abounding and being invented or perfected in New York, we take credit for a lot of things in this great city. There has to be something profound about one of the other most well-known icons of Christmas and New York City, and that is the Christmas tree. Yep, with Santa bringing all those goodies, there had to be some place to put them under. Uh, thus, the American love affair with the Christmas tree. Uh, the Christmas tree came to the United States both via the UK, where the German Prince Albert had introduced the custom to the royal family, and German and Dutch settlers in New York State itself. Uh, the Christmas tree would find its American apotheosis in the great public tree in Rockefeller Center, the second such in the country, and beat by the first, which was in Boston, by only 30 minutes. Wow. <laughs> in terms of the illum public illumination. So the tree is usually a Norway spruce, 70 to 100 feet tall. It's been a national tradition every year since 1933. The actual first Christmas tree at Rockefeller Center was erected in 1931 during the Depression era, uh, during the construction of Rockefeller Center, when workers decorated a smaller 20-foot fir with, quote, strings of cranberries, garlands of paper, and even a few tin cans. With the lighting of the 50-foot-tall first official tree two years later, the tree became what Rockefeller Center dubbed a holiday beacon for New Yorkers and visitors alike. A skating rink was opened below the tree in the plaza in 1936, which, of course, features the famous statue of Prometheus. And unlike some of the more raucous traditions of yesteryear that went by the wayside, thankfully or otherwise, the tree at Rockefeller Center and its lightning are still with us. Yes, the um, 2019 Christmas tree lighting took place on December 4th. The tree will remain on display until January 17th. Uh, since 1997, the lighting has been broadcast live to hundreds of millions of people on NBC's Christmas and Rockefeller Center telecast on the Wednesday after Thanksgiving. The tree lighting ceremony is aired at the end of every broadcast following live entertainment, and the tree is always lit by the current mayor of New York City and special guests. Well, it sounds a little bit like an uh, experience I had in New Orleans. Maybe it's not quite the same when uh, the mayor of New Orleans always greets Rex coming off a boat uh, uh, in Moonwalk in New Orleans. Um, I suppose it's not the same as the mayor lighting the Christmas tree, but uh, <laughs> traditions abound. Um, uh, now, trees are traditionally donated to Rockefeller Center, which in turn donates the lumber after uh, display. Mm -hmm. um, who was it who was doing all this, David, uh, taking care of getting the tree and donating the tree? Well, until his death in 2009, the late David Murbach, who was the manager of the Gardens Division of Rockefeller Center, personally scouted for the desired tree in upstate New York and surrounding states, uh, including uh, places outside of the country, such as Ottawa and, and Ontario and Canada. Eric Pauze is the head gardener at Rockefeller Center, and every year he looks for Rockefeller Center's Christmas tree now. So he visits nurseries throughout the tri-state area and looks for unique backyard trees. Trees are also submitted for consideration through Rockefeller Center's website. Uh, Pauze and his team choose each year's tree based on its hardiness and Christmas tree shape, as well as its ability to support the ornaments, which actually are rather heavy. How heavy can they be? Uh, they, well, the, 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 tr the, um, stellar body that actually, uh, is associated with the display weighs 900 pounds. Wow. So that's, uh, gives, gives you kind of a ballpark figure there. Could even crush Santa Claus if it falls on him. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's the thing that tops the tree. Oh. So. So, uh, once a tree is selected, there's a crane that supports it while it's cut. Then uh, it's moved to a custom telescoping trailer, able to transport trees that are up to 125 feet tall. Uh, although the narrowness of the streets, this is interesting, actually are what limit the height of the tree. Because they have to be able to make turns and angles around the buildings that are around the plaza. So 100 feet is really about as high as they can go. Um, the tree's often dressed in giant red bows, banners extending holiday greetings, uh, and it also is decorated with 50,000 multicolored LED lights, as well as the 50,000? Wow. Yes, as well as the 900 pound star at the top that we've all already mentioned. So, 
Um, the first year of the first official tree was also the first performance of the Radio City Music Hall Christmas Spectacular, also very much part of Rockefeller Center. Uh, it debuted again in 1933. It draws more than a million people annually and features the Rockettes, a precision dance troupe that had been a staple at Radio City since the very early 1930s. In 1999, the magnificent Art Deco lobby and hall of the theater were restored and declared interior landmarks of New York City. Uh, it was a seven-month, $70 million restoration, and those interiors are one of only 145 interior landmarks uh, in New York City. Uh, the buildings wow. themselves, the entire building complex is landmarked, but those interiors are landmarked separately. And of course, uh, uh, the stage at Radio City is the largest proscenium theater in New York City. Uh, distant second is the Metropolitan Opera House. Yes, also an interior landmark, I believe. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, so. It's beautiful. It's it's one of the gems of 60s architecture. That's for another show, though. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with David and Daniel about New York and the holidays. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, The Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our show is about New York and the myriad textures of our amazing city. There's another great show on the air about New York and specifically about the business of real estate. It's called Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. on voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like this show on Facebook, Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles there are JeffGoodmanNYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One other note before we continue with our holiday special around the holidays in New York, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about the real estate business, when I'm not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in this amazing city where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you all with those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. David, there's another amazing thing that warms the hearts of people all over the country and indeed in places around the world and that has its finer roots in New York and one of the things that New York is really well known for. 
Yes. Uh, well, with the uh, ties to material comforts and gifts, it's not surprising that New York's Christmas led the way in the development of another tradition, the department store holiday window. Um, one of the very first major holiday window displays ever, ever anywhere was put up by Macy's New York store in 1874, a very, very early date for department stores. Um, it featured a collection of porcelain dolls and scenes from Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was very much in the national consciousness at that time. It still must have been very much on people's minds, even almost a decade after it ended, for them to have, you know, Uncle Tom's cabin dolls and windows of stores. Yes, I mean, I think definitely uh, not just the the fallout from the Civil War, but the the sort of change in demographics, particularly the American, uh, the African American population, the assassination of Lincoln, all these things had major repercussions. Uh, there were a lot of um, African American families that were now moving north to cities like Chicago and New York. So things like Uncle Tom's Cabin and literature about the Civil War and about the the fallout and the occurrences after the Civil War was very much part of the uh, still 10 years after the war had indeed come to an end. And of course Harriet Beecher Stowe was was a New York well actually she wasn't a New Yorker she was a Brooklynite but uh, right well <laughs> lived in the lived in the metropolitan area. Um, it wasn't until the early 1900s that the competition for grabbing the attention of customers really intensified among the larger retailers in three major cities in the United States New York Chicago and Philadelphia in part this was due to the development of things like plate glass. So the windows on the ground floors could be larger, uh, more open area. Um, new types of uh, formed mannequins came in that made for realistic displays. Uh, it was no longer just sort of a dressmaker's dummy. You could actually sort of pose the doll or the form to look like the dress or the suit would actually be worn. So um, store owners and managers use window displays to, to lure shoppers to the stores and over the holidays, the displays became a lot more colorful and creative. However, it wasn't until 1938 uh, that Lord and Taylor really created a high-water mark for this type of thing by deciding not to present any of the store merchandise in the windows at all for the holidays. Instead, they came up with a purely decorative display of gilded bells that swung in sync with the sounds of recorded bells. So what you were looking at was a, a diorama that would have been something that you would have uh, associated, uh, say, 10 or 20 years later with certain rides at Disney World or Disneyland. Um, it represented a kind of a full transition from windows being used to display products at all to designs that were intended solely as an artistic or technological wonder to draw people to the store, generate conversation, publicity, atmosphere, and excitement. So people would come to see these windows that were really quite spectacular, and then they'd go in to see the products. The products were no longer necessarily incorporated into the displays. Um, unfortunately, Lord & Taylor, which I loved, has just shut its flagship location earlier this year. But over the decades, many other department stores have teamed up with designers, artists, and other companies to create these window displays. Uh, the ones at Saks and Bergdorf's and Tiffany's are all especially notable. Well, with all these New York-inspired Christmas traditions, there's another one that brings the holiday season in with a bang, right? Absolutely. Santa in Thanksgiving Day Parades, uh, sponsored by Gimbel's in 1920 and Macy's in 1924. Uh, they began to incorporate the idea that the Christmas shopping season started the day after Thanksgiving, because this is the first time we're seeing Santa out and about. Uh, the retail giant Macy's also claims to be the home of the first department store Santa, but the distinction appears to lie in the manner of dress. There is a department store in Brockton, Massachusetts, that had the first Santa Claus that resembles our modern idea of the figure and was so popular uh, that families would actually travel from New York City to Brockton to have a chance to see this gentleman. Uh, but New York Emporium soon followed suit, if you'll pardon the pun. Well, we couldn't let a town like Brockton best New York now, could we? <laughs> I think not. So, With all due respect to, to people in Brockton. The department store Santa, of course, was the, the central figure of a perennial Christmas favorite, which is Miracle on 34th Street, a 1947 American Christmas comedy drama film. It was written and directed by George Seaton, based on a short story by Valentine Davies. Uh, it stars Maureen O'Hara, John Payne, and Edmund Gwynn. Uh, with a performance by the actress Natalie Wood as a child who 
sort of doubts the identity of her department store Santa, who in turn is claiming to be the actual Santa Claus. Uh, it's notable for containing an early message against over-commercialization and excessive materialism, but it's also sort of remarkable in that it depicts the actual feud between Macy's and Gimbel's at the time, and was shot at least on part on repli- sets that replicate uh, the department stores of that period. Uh, Miracle on 34th Street won three Academy Awards. Uh, Gwen for Best Actor in a Supporting Role. He, he was playing Saint, Saint Santa Claus. Uh, George Seaton for Best Writing and Screenplay. The film was nominated for Best Picture, uh, Losing to Gentleman's Agreement, which I think we can all agree that we have not heard of before. No, well, actually, Gentleman's Agreement was interesting, too, because the uh, film that uh, talk about uh, the multicultural things about New York, Gentleman's Agreement, part of it also takes place in New York, and, that's, ah. and that is also about, that has a very... Uh, substantial Jewish theme. It's about um, uh, restrictive covenants and Jews ah, being excluded okay. from hotels. Uh, we are going to talk about a Jewish holiday in a, in a little bit. David, I'm wondering if Miracle on 34th Street was inspired at all by that editorial uh, that was written by, by Francis I, I have to imagine that that was really kind of at the center of it, at least in terms of the scenes with Natalie Wood. Uh, it's also kind of a question of identity and how people choose, I think, to present themselves, which is a very modern idea these days. Here's someone who believes himself to be Santa Claus. Is there a way we can prove he isn't? And do we need to? So the the sort of legal idea of how you define yourself, I think, is kind of also at the, the center of the film, which is really sort of advanced for that time period. And also very much in the spirit of so much of what New York brings to the world and to its people, I think. Uh, it's, a, it's such a wonderful film. If anyone on listening has never seen it, go see it. Or, or you can think you can go see it. You've got to rent it. Um, but another uh, more far-flung and recent tradition uh, in the display of Christmas lights is actually in Brooklyn. Hmm. In Diker Heights, a residential neighborhood in South Brooklyn, uh, directly contiguous with Bay Ridge. Uh, starting sometime in the late 1970s, would have been a pair of very complex displays located across the street from one another and kind of growing in decoration as a sort of a friendly neighbor, neighbor-to-neighbor rivalry, if you will, um, one-upmanship. Uh, began to catch on as a neighborhood-wide trend, and it's now a nationally famous destination during winter months. I was just out there a few days ago taking some pictures, and uh, you know the traffic just comes to a stop block after block after block of houses with holiday lights, uh, some of which have as many as 45,000 lights involved in wow. yards and gardens. So it's really quite remarkable. I remember when I was growing up, my, um, uh, I, like another guest, like Daniel, we both come from families that have Jewish as well as Christian people, and I would go to my grandmother's on Christmas Eve, and I lived in Sheepshead Bay, and we would always mm-hmm. drive on the Bell Parkway on the way to Manhattan, and we'd take the Lincoln Tunnel. And us, we kids were just in wonder on the Bell Parkway, all these lights. It was just unbelievable, and that was in Diker Heights and also in Bensonhurst. Um, well, that brings us to another New York tradition. Uh, thankfully, we can't take credit for starting it here, and that's SantaCon. <laughs> for those people who don't know it, it usually takes place a week or two before Christmas on a Saturday. People dress in Santa costumes or variations thereon. Uh, there are usually lots of fun costumes, but it gets pretty messy, even at 11 a.m. in the morning and even on the subway. Uh, it actually looks like it's fun, but uh, uh, it can get a little bit uh, uh, ratty at some point. It started in San Francisco, and in December 2014, there was a cover story in the Village Voice that, recount- that recounted how SantaCon had evolved from, quote, a joyful performance art to a reviled bar crawl of drunken brawling, vandalism, public urination, and disorder in New York City and elsewhere, resulting in fierce community resistance and disavowals from the originators of the event. Sounds like history repeats itself or what happened in the 200 years ago in New York. It's actually a very much a throwback to the traditions of 18th century New York, except instead of your chimney sweep, it's um, the local fraternity house. Well, um, and also, by the way, uh, for those people who are in Santa, who are in New York at the time of SantaCon, it's not uh, rare to see bouncers at front of bars beginning at one or two in the afternoon who don't let the SantaCon revelers in their bars. There, uh, but uh, at that point, there are so many sheets to the wind that they don't care, and they just go on to the next. There place. was a funny sign um, observed in Brooklyn, I believe, on Bergen Street that said. 
No Santas, no Mrs. Clauses, no sexy Santas or Mrs. Clauses, no gingerbread men, no sexy gingerbread men, no candy canes, no sexy candy canes, no reindeer, no sexy reindeer, nothing. You know, so like they weren't letting anybody in with any of those costumes. But yeah, the idea of the sexy candy cane is definitely food for thought. <laughs> well, talk about getting out of the holiday spirit. Uh, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue with our discussion of the holidays in New York. Be back in a moment. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media. My guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. TalkingAlternative.com We're back to Rediscovering New York with my guests, David Griffin and Daniel Katz. Well, Christmas is not the only holiday around the holiday time that uh, has traditions in New York, one of which is Three Kings Day. Daniel, do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. So Three Kings Day is a very typical holiday for those of us in the Latino community and the sort of more Hispanic community all around the world, actually. But here in New York, with the Latino community and the Puerto Rican and Cuban and Dominican, it actually has become a very popular day in in New York. It's, um, it is January 6th. It's actually the 12th day of Christmas. So, you know, most people don't realize that that song, the 12 days of Christmas, this one actually ends it. <laughs> um, and it celebrates the, the epiphany, the day that the three uh, magi, the three kings, came to give the gifts to Jesus. Um, they are named Melchior, Gaspar, and Balthazar. And they are, um, and they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh, as I'm sure many of you have heard the stories before. Um, but in New York City, it actually has become a popular day to celebrate in Eastern in East Harlem. So El Museo del Barrio, which is a Latin museum in East Harlem, in Spanish Harlem, as it is often known, they've been doing a, a, um, a parade there for over 40 years now. And you see, get to see the three kings come, and you see the camels that they ride, and though I think a few of them actually ride bicycles rather than camels, but <laughs> they're all dressed up, and there's a lot of art that goes around it, and it's a, it's a huge celebration. And um, there actually are now different celebrations around the five boroughs, actually. But that's sort of the one that is has been the biggest in the city for, for the longest amount of time. Mm. Great. I've, I've not been to Museo del Barrio for, th- for Three Kings Day. That actually sounds like a very fun thing to do. No, it sounds great. Um, well, we have a history of another major holiday in New York, Hanukkah, or as we say in Hebrew, Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights. Uh, for those listeners who are unfamiliar with the holiday, I'll give you a little background. It commemorates a successful revolt by the Jews of Judea almost 200 years before Jesus was born. It takes place around 200 BC. Uh, Judea then, which is also known as the land of Israel, came under the control of a Seleucid king of Syria. Seleucid is partly Greek uh, uh, affiliated. 
the first king allowed the Jews who lived there to continue practicing their religion, but his son, sadly, proved a little less benevolent. Uh, he not only outlawed the Jewish religion and ordered the Jews to worship Greek gods, uh, his soldiers descended on Jerusalem, he massacred thousands of Jews, and desecrated the city's holy second temple by erecting an altar to Zeus and even sacrificing pigs within its sacred walls. Well, uh, the people there not wanting to take it, a large-scale rebellion broke out against that son of the king, uh, who was also the king. When the leader of the rebellion died in 166 BC, his son Judah, known as Judah Maccabee, also had the name of the hammer. He took the helm, and within two years, the Jews had successfully driven the Syrians out of Jerusalem. The victors cleansed the temple, rebuilt its altar, and lit its menorah. That's the gold candelabrum whose seven branches represented knowledge and creation and were meant to be kept burning every night. The story goes that even though there, were, there was only enough untainted olive oil to keep the menorah's candles burning for a single day, the flames continued flickering for eight nights, leaving them time to find a fresh supply. This wondrous event inspired the Jewish sages to proclaim a yearly eight-day festival. Hanukkah is a joyful holiday celebrated over eight days, when we Jews celebrate by lighting a special menorah that has eight branches and an additional head branch instead of seven. Give presents, mostly to children, of course, and we played all sorts of games, including dreidel. Ah, dreidel, dreidel, dreidel. Well, and that the history of uh, Hanukkah in New York, even though there were, sig there were significant numbers of German Jews in New York since the 1840s, New York's Jewish population was relatively low through the 1800s, uh, and even within the religion, Hanukkah had traditionally been a minor festival. Many of the Jews who were in New York, uh, many of the German Jews were actually reformed. But a, a boom in Jewish immigration from Eastern Europe beginning in 1881 and a reassertion of religious traditions in a new country completely changed the fabric of New York. Eventually, the eight-day festival of light, as we know it, emerged as an important tradition of New York. But the first Jews to promote Hanukkah in America weren't in New York. It sounds like the folks in Brockton with uh, the Red Santa Claus outfit. Uh, in the middle of the 19th century, rabbis who led the reform movement, which was largely based in Cincinnati, Ohio, came up with the idea of the Festival of Lights for children in Hanukkah as a way to keep them interested at synagogue, taking the celebration home tied to a growing trend of home-based celebrations, like birthday parties happening across the country in the second half of the 19th century. Well, the late 19th and early 20th century would change the fabric of New York, bringing mass immigration of Eastern European Jews to New York City. Though New York was a Christian-leaning city, these immigrant communities were living in a country that held its promise of freedom of religion. And so, within the Jewish community, a debate started as to how Jewish traditions could live on, not just in New York, but the country as a whole. Celebrating Hanukkah offered an opportunity for many Jewish immigrants to openly celebrate their religion, something that wasn't always possible in the countries that they came from. It was even said, uh, we had L trains uh, downtown, elevated trains. It was said that passengers riding the L trains through the Lower East Side on the 2nd and the 3rd Avenue Wells on a December night in the 1890s would have seen hundreds of tiny candles illuminating the windows of tenement apartments, obviously inhabited by Jews who were from Eastern Europe. Still, the traditions of Christmas and Hanukkah kind of uh, uh, came together. Celebrating Christmas and assimilating to the new culture proved appealing to many newly arrived immigrants. The New York Tribune noted on Christmas Day in 1904 that Santa Claus visited the east side last night and hardly missed a tenement house. That's a direct quote. Jews installed Christmas trees in their homes and thought nothing of the carols their children sang in the public schools. Speaking of uh, the carols and the bells, I think we have a sleigh coming in, at least of Mrs. Cl Mrs. Claus. Uh, others looked at the commercialization surrounding Christmas with, with hesitation. Many Jews had a deep and abiding anxiety about Christmas, the commercialization of it, the merriness, the sparkly Christmas was altogether new to them. Some Jewish leaders had become concerned that their religious traditions would be abandoned to those quickly acclimating to New York City. Hanukkah, in effect, emerged to serve almost as a counterbalance to Christmas. To many immigrants and their children, the celebration became a way of asserting Jewish identity in America. And as more and more Jews found economic success in New York, buying presents for children became a way to validate the risk they took in emigrating. As the 20th century wore on, the Hanukkah industry emerged, Celebration became more widespread. By the 1970s, menorah lightings were taking place in many American parks, city halls, and village greens. In 1979, President Jimmy Carter was participating in a lighting ceremony. 
Today in New York, the Chabad Lubavitch Jewish Outreach Organization sponsors the lighting of a massive menorah, 32 feet tall on Fifth Avenue and 59th Street near Central Park. Mm, yeah. One thing many New Yorkers see around and love, even if they aren't Jewish, is latkes, fried potato pancakes. There's a lot of it going around in New York. Uh, foods fried in oil have special significance because of the oil, and many Jewish people bring fried goodies to their places of work and businesses like Christian people bring Christmas and cookies and other sweets. Uh, one other thing, uh, Jewish New Yorkers also shape Christmas season as we know it. A young Russian Jew, Irving Berlin, was trying to make it big through the early 1900s in Tin Pan Alley. That's also in New York, by the way, on 26th Street. He would go on to white, write White Christmas in 1943. And Jay Livingston and Ray Evans wrote Silver Bells, like the ones we just heard here, after being inspired by the Salvation Army bell ringers around the city. But the fascinating history of the Festival of Lights here in New York is an example of how immigration and traditions from elsewhere have come to define the city's holiday season. Well, we've just finished our special episode on the holidays in New York. I want to thank my guest, David Griffin, who's our special consultant from Landmark Branding. Thanks a lot, Chuck. And Daniel Katz from The Danielist, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon, this thank evening. Thank you. It's great. Yeah, happy, happy holidays. Sunday. Thank you. And to you as well. If you have questions or comments about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook, Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter, Jeff Goodman NYC. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategists at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation, and a special thanks to the people who came in this evening on a sleigh. Thank you so much. One more thing before we sign off. I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Halstead in New York City, and whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I are dedicated to our clients and come to our work with passion. We bring the best expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer this evening is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding, who is in the studio tonight. Stay tuned at 8 p.m. right here on talkradio.nyc for Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way with Noreen Sumter. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. And very, very happy holidays to you. Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. 
Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 